Hello again, and welcome to the July Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal. Our editor's choice paper examines respiratory therapist experiences and attitudes regarding terminal extubations and end-of-life care. Grand Hige and colleagues surveyed RTs at two academic medical centers about their experiences caring for patients with terminal extubations. They found that RTs are rarely involved in end-of-life discussions despite a desire to be, and they experience situations that generate discomfort. Strickland suggested integrating content regarding ethical decision-making, end-of-life care, withdrawal of life support, and palliative care not only into the entry-to-practice curriculum, but also into postgraduate continuing education for RTs, as this is vital to improving the RT's ability to participate and contribute to higher quality care for the patient at the end of life. RT integration into care teams focused on palliative care and end-of-life care, as well as into primary care teams in the ICU, will not only enhance collaboration, but also improve patient care. The purpose of the study by Burnett et al. was to investigate the prevalence of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction by a self-report questionnaire and the perceived impact of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction in college athletes. A majority of athletes reported a history of current symptoms related to exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, or asthma. Many were not taking any asthma medication, and they reported concern about exercise-induced bronchoconstriction adversely affecting their sports performance. As pointed out by DiGiulio, signs and symptoms of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction should be taken seriously, and Burnett and others have shown that this is not always the case. This study supports the need for future educational programs that should include athletes, families, trainers, coaches, and teachers. McConnell et al. conducted an observational study to assess the proportion of subjects with an arterial blood gas result within 60 minutes of mechanical ventilation initiation. A post-intubation checklist and timeout improved the timeliness of mechanical ventilation monitoring through a more rapid assessment of arterial blood gases. Unfortunately, however, there was only moderate adoption of the checklist. The authors propose that implementing this peri-intubation procedure may reduce the risk associated with transitioning to mechanical ventilation. Poon and critics suggest that perhaps a simpler checklist needs to be developed. Maybe clinical champions of the checklist need to be identified. The answer to creating and sustaining a program that assures timely completion of routine processes after intubation remains to be found, but we can learn from the experiences of this study. In their study, Berlinski and Cooper hypothesized that using a soft mist inhaler and changing the delivery route from tracheostomy to oral nasal may increase lung dose. They found that, in general, a soft mist inhaler delivers higher lung dose than a pressurized meter dose inhaler when using a metallic spacer drawing oronasal and tracheostomy root with the latter providing higher lung dose. To develop normal values, Carrillo and colleagues evaluated diaphragm thickness measurements with a two-dimensional B-mode ultrasound at rest in healthy subjects. 
they found that real-time ultrasound of the diaphragm is a simple, inexpensive, and portable imaging technique that can provide qualitative anatomical information. The purpose of the study by Estadoy et al. was to examine the relationship between hand grip strength and maximum inspiratory pressure in healthy, young, and middle-aged individuals. Their results showed significant correlation between the hand flexor force and strength of inspiratory muscles in healthy individuals. This study should be viewed as hypothesis generating and further studies are required in critically ill or difficult to wean patients. DeVito and colleagues determined the carbon dioxide rebreathing response in subjects with late onset Pompeii disease. They found that subjects with late on-stage Pompeii disease had an impaired hypercapnic respiratory drive response. The clinical impact of this phenomenon in this patient's subset warrants further investigation. The aim of the study by Restor et al. was to observe the reproducibility of sputum color identification by different categories of health caregivers using a sputum color chart. They found that even if a sputum color chart is a useful tool for the clinician in the context of a clinical deterioration, it presents non-uniform reliability regarding the caregivers and their category. The purpose of the study by Jacobson and colleagues was to examine socioeconomic variations in use of prescription medicines among elderly subjects with COPD. They found that there were no systematic socioeconomic differences in the use of prevalent prescription medicines in elderly subjects diagnosed with COPD in the hospital setting. Their findings do indicate a gap between guideline recommendations and observed use of long-acting bronchodilators and thus suboptimal quality of treatment in the elderly COPD patient population. Cystatin C is a biomarker of renal function and an important risk factor for all-cause and cardiovascular mortality among elderly persons. The aim of the study by WHO et al. was to examine the prognostic role of cystatin C for mortality of COPD exacerbations. They found that cystatin C was a strong and independent risk factor for hospital mortality in COPD exacerbations. The study by Lee and colleagues used the National Health Insurance Research Database in Taiwan to examine the risk factors for tracheostomy in infants with congenital heart disease and to evaluate the associated mortality risk in those who received a tracheostomy. Infants with congenital heart disease had an increased risk of undergoing tracheostomy. Their mortality risk was significantly increased in infants with congenital heart disease and tracheostomy, and the risk increases progressively with time. Tang et al. evaluated prognostic factors for acute organophosphorus pesticide poisoning. High 6-hour post-admission blood lactate levels, low blood pH, and low post-admission 6-hour lactate clearance rates were independent prognostic factors identified by multivariate logistic regression analysis. 
This month we published the paper by Needham and his colleagues from the third Thomas L. Petty Memorial Lecture entitled Early Mobilization and Rehabilitation in the Intensive Care Unit, Looking Back to the Future. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.